On this episode of China Unscripted, China wants to invade Taiwan and the U.S. is not prepared. What can the U.S. and Taiwan do to avoid disaster? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesda. Joining us today is retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, former director of operations for the U.S. Pacific Command. He is currently Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So, so I'm really excited to talk a lot about, um, you know, you're, you were very knowledgeable about the Pacific, obviously, and, uh, you know, Taiwan. There's been some interesting developments with Taiwan recently. Uh, I, guess, I guess the big thing that happened was that the State Department on its uh, webpage talking about its Taiwan stance, it uh, removed the part where it said Taiwan is part of China. And it also removed the thing that, that said uh, the US does not advocate for Taiwan independence. Like, wh what do you make of this? Is this some kind of major shift in US-Taiwan policy, strategic ambiguity? Well, I'm, I'm uncomfortable saying that right now, only because we've had the president say things about Taiwan multiple times over the last yep. 15 months that were then walked back slightly. We had the whole fiasco, if you remember, when the Taiwan health minister was on a uh, website, it was on a, uh, a um, virtual uh, presentation with the map in the background that showed Taiwan a separate color from China. And they turned her off, didn't turn her off. It was, accident. It was the, a one-time only glitch done only to Taiwan. So what I would say is I'm I'm holding my breath until we have an actual dis discussion of this by senior State Department leadership of what uh, what what new interpretations there are. It doesn't have to be changes, but what new interpretations there are to how we see the uh, decisions that we made in in 1979 and in the, in the subsequent Taiwan Relations Act and, and other things. And so, once we get that State Department discussion, I think then we can have a reasonable discussion about the decision. I, I will say I'm not uncomfortable with any of the two things I heard today, but I'm uncomfortable doing it without having a forthright discussion about it. Just that they suddenly changed it on the website and people noticed, essentially. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting that it doesn't really have to be, like you said, a change in the policy, but a reinterpretation because the way that you could kind of read what they did was instead of centering the PRC in its discussion of U.S.-Taiwan relations, it kind of just took that whole thing out of it where now that page is mostly just talking about U.S. and Taiwan and their relations with each other without saying anything about, uh, well, I think, you know, before it was like, explaining what the U.S. one China policy was and said it acknowledged that there's only one China, that, you know, we're not supporting Taiwan independence, like you said. But now it just, it doesn't say that we're supporting Taiwan independence or anything like that. It just kind of takes the PRC more out of the calculation. And um, I don't think the PRC is going to be really happy with that. It's like passing the Bechtel test, but with respect to China. Like, the, the opposite, where you don't talk about China? Some, something like that. Spectral <laughs> test? Is we that don't... like where you determine somebody's an android? No. We'll no. talk about that later. Okay. <laughs> so one thing I'd say about this is that you know, I, wouldn't, I would be 
not surprised and disappointed if we hear later on like, oh, we didn't mean any new interpretation. We're just cleaning up that website, you know, like some kind of you know, lack of definitive declaration. I, I, just, I think that would be that would that would you know, it would, it would serve only to have pissed off China, disappointed Taiwan and confused our other allies and partners. Um, you know, and so and, and that would be frustrating. You know, it reminds me, Elliot Cohen did a pretty damning piece. Uh, recently, and uh, I think in either foreign affairs or foreign policy, where he discussed the lack of statecraft in the last few national security councils. And if we're doing this kind of thing without, and even the way we did it, even if it turns out we've totally changed our policy, to do it by a website erasure first is a lack of statecraft, and we're just not practicing that very well right now. Well, actually, I think the the Biden administration has done a fantastic job really emphasizing the essence of strategic ambiguity. Like when, when, when Biden was asked by a reporter, can you vow to protect Taiwan? And Biden said, yes, but he didn't mean yes. And it got walked back. I mean, how well, can I mean, you be more I, ambiguous than that? He, maybe he meant yes, but then people were, I feel like this is what people would talk about all the time when Trump was president, that like, you know, he would misspeak a uh-huh. lot. And, you know, Biden historically has done a lot of the same kind of thing, but we're just less obsessed about it now. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Trump had all the best words, so he doesn't, there's nothing for Biden to use. Trump has them all. (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, Perhaps for the sake of the audience, uh, we we should establish what strategic ambiguity is. So so how, how, what was that and how did it affect how you operated in the Pacific? So. I think strategic ambiguity was uh, a general an introduction trying to introduce risk into Chinese decision making by not stating what our specific intentions were in in in, ter- in any particular crisis or contingency. So we wouldn't answer the hypothetical, and we left it. You know, we left we we it, it is a way of introducing risk, which I guess is a way of introducing a deterrent effect into Chinese planning. I do think at some point, though, if strategic ambiguity is not backed up by forceful positioning, in other words, it's easy to be strategically, it's, you can be very effective when you're strategically ambiguous and significantly stronger than the adversary. Then they're deterred. Of course, strategic ambiguity lost a lot of its effectiveness over the last 20 years as the, as the Chinese undertook an extensive and very effective modernization of their armed forces where they began to change the balance first inside the fir- initially inside the first island chain and and now really between the first and second island chain so now the united states you know we're we're not carrying a big stick because uh, we're you know we're we're not speaking strong because we have strategic ambiguity and we're not carrying a big stick because we didn't have the military or and in and in many ways economic our our economic relationships with northeast asia and southeast asia our percentage of trade with them versus Chinese uh, trade percentages went down as well. So in all these kind of elements of national power, we were getting weaker in the Western Pacific while trying to hang on to the strategic ambiguity. I think that's the challenge. Like, I get the value of strategic ambiguity when you can back it up with, with overwhelming economic and military power if it turns out you were willing to do something. Strategic ambiguity loses its effect if it's not backed up by that kind of overwhelming economic and military power. Well, that definitely took a hit with the whole Scarborough Shoal incident, where uh, China essentially took over 
uh, territory claimed by the Philippines. And, you know, unlike Taiwan, the U.S. does have a military agreement to protect and defend the Philippines. And the U.S. did nothing. No, no, we did something. We got the Philippines and China to to talk it out, hug it out, and they agreed to both back off, and then China did not. And and we got ourselves into a a, a legal like you know vortex of uh, is Scarborough Shoals covered under the treaty? You know, and uh, you know I've read a lot of our treaties. You know, being assigned to both U.S. European Command and U.S. Pacific Command, and I would describe the treaties with Thailand and the Philippines to be exceptionally weak treaties. You know what I mean? They're, they're slightly more than if you have a problem, give us a call, we'll have a cup of tea. But, you know, they're not written in the same kind of way um, that our treaties are written with um, NATO and, uh, and then with uh, Japan, for example. And we're not willing, for a lot of reasons, most centered around the value of the partner to the United States, willing to make the kind of statements that we've made for Japan. We have been very clear, I think, since 2012 now about the status of the administrative control of the Senkaku Islands and our belief that it falls you know, underneath the uh, U.S.-Japanese uh, Mutual Defense Treaty. Do you think that's been a reason that the Chinese Communist Party has focused more on the South China Sea than they have on the East China Sea? Because... Before then, they were definitely making a lot more moves towards the Senkakus as well. Yeah. And they still, I don't want to, um, you know, they still every year, you know, like an anaconda get slightly tighter on the Senkakus, closer and more numerous ship patrols, closer and more frequent air overflight, you know, aviation overflight, military aviation overflights. So they're still messing with the Senkakus, but they're not signaling it the same way they do. That's done in a much more quieter Way and the Japanese response is is done in a very you know in their typical kind of subtle way of just trying to very closely not escalate and match Chinese actions. Whereas in the South China Sea, I think most of the you know they're competing there with countries that desperately need some of the resources in the South China Sea. So you're just going to see a more I think they're for a lot of reasons you're going to see a more co- combative approach. And you're exactly right. Overriding it is not a U.S. guarantee. So I think that's why you see a little more competitiveness, a lot more competitiveness overtly in the South China Sea. It involves Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines. Yeah, I mean, you know, for years the U.S. told China not to build artificial islands in the South China Sea, and then they did. And then the U.S. response was, okay, just don't militarize them. And now at least three of them are fully militarized. So we can see that the U.S. is not being very effective in the South China Sea. But we are being ambiguous, and that's strategic. (laughs) Uh. Good point. So do you think strategic ambiguity is making an invasion of Taiwan more or less likely? I think now it makes it, unfortunately, more, more likely. I do think we need clarity. And the reason we need clarity is we don't have that. And look, strategic clarity has got to be backed up by other actions. And those other actions are, I mean, I've written a few articles on this and, uh, and spoken uh, in, in some interviews that, you know, there are explicit things we have to do both to develop ourselves, develop the Taiwans, uh, integrate between the two of us, and then integrate in allies and partners. So across the, the, all three of those lines of effort, 
We have to do things. And only as you do that will strategic clarity have value. But I think that's the only option. Strategic ambiguity backed up by um, uh, questionable credibility on whether we'll use the force and a weakening level of uh, military and economic power is not a feasible long-term solution here. Well, so what are some of those specifics that you think the U.S. does need to do? Well, well, for us, it's about being more capable um, to, you know, within, you know, six to 10 days, having the relevant forces in position and, and able to uh, repulse uh, any type of counterintervention uh, force or intervention force that was coming from China, support the Taiwans with that and and help them uh, in the uh, in the case of, say, some kind of a, a blockade or quarantine. Those kind of things are very specifically, we have to get better and more prolific at long-range anti-ship cruise missiles. Michelle Flournoy, in, in an article about, uh, I guess now almost two years ago, wrote that we basically have to be able to remove about, you know, we have to remove about 75% of the PLA Navy in about 72 hours. I, I think that's actually a fairly accurate assessment. To do that, two things are going are to be important. One's the one I'm mentioning right now, the long-range anti-ship cruise missiles. And the beauty of that is we're good at it. We are, are good at applying precision munitions at range, you know, targeting and holding at risk ships at sea. And we can do it. The Air Force has got a fantastic platform with the B-1. Uh, I, they need to transfer to the transition to the B-2 because the B-1 is aging out of their force. Uh, transfer, I'm, I'm sorry, to the B-52, which the B-52 is apparently never going to age out of their force. And, you know, they're doing a lot of work on its engines and wings and and uh, it can carry a lot of LRASMs and, and do a lot of damage. And the Navy's okay at this. They have F-18s that obviously drop a lot less weapons, but they've also begun to re-engineer the P-8, the, the new uh, maritime patrol aircraft, to, to be able to do this. So that's a lot of different assets launched from a lot of different places, both in continental United States and Guam and Japan and Australia, from all over that could place them at risk. So the first thing is get good at that. The, the second thing, and by the way, the services have been slow to buy LRASM. There's just no other description for it. The Senate and House uh, the, the, the have had to force, Congress has had to force procurement of this. I, I can't explain why, but they were just exceptionally slow. They're now finally buying, this is the first year that the services have requested a max purchase, you know, a max line purchase of the system, despite the fact it's, it's you know, PACON's been screaming for it for seven years. What is the system for the audience? Uh, the long-range anti-ship cruise missile is about, you know, is, you know, more than a, a hundred, several hundred kilometers range missile that's launched from, as I said, all those aviation platforms, and w you know, does enough maneuvering that it'll be very hard for the, uh, for the uh, Chinese in Endgame, I think, to defend their ships. And I'm not going to compare Chinese ships to the Moskva, but I'm going to say that, you know, the Chinese share some aspects of of the challenge of um, anti-ship cruise missile defense. And that's taking what were initially land-based systems and, and trying to optimize them for sea-based, you know, for, for sea-based assets. Um, so that's the first thing. The, the second thing you gotta do is you gotta exploit your undersea warfare advantage. We have to maintain our submarine fleet. We have to have enough of what are called Mark 48 advanced capacity, capability torpedoes. Uh, they're called Mark 48 ad caps. We've got to have enough of those. We've got to be able to reload them in multiple places throughout the AOR. That 
it's a slow warfare. It won't get that 72-hour timeline or Florence, but it will eventually destroy the whole Chinese Navy. And we need to have enough of them so that we can, at, at a, you know, as a crisis builds up, flow, flow submarines into the Western Pacific. The Navy has historically said they need about 69 submarines to have the, the right level. I'll just tell you, we haven't had 69 submarines in 15 years. And we're currently, and this are attack submarines, we're currently around 52. We're going to bottom out around 48 and then start to slowly build back up. So we do have a gap there. But luckily, we're really good at this and the Chinese are. Uh, you know, we do have a significant advantage in undersea warfare. So we need to, to um, support that with better what are called Tago ships. They're the, they're the uh, hydrographic uh, ships that listen for, um, you know, uh, t- uh, submarines at great ranges. Um, and, uh, and then the P-8s that I mentioned earlier, the maritime patrol aircraft, you have to have quite a few of those. So really it, it invest in your undersea warfare. So El Rasm's undersea warfare. If I could give you one more, we've got to figure out how to defend Guam. Guam is the mm-hmm. base for the submarines. So we reload the submarines. It's the base for at least the fighters and support aircraft, if not the bombers themselves. Um, Oh, one other thing, it's U.S. territory with 150,000 plus American citizens on it. We need to actually defend this. And it's going to be hard. So, you, you know, I, I see, you know, where sometimes DOD, senior DOD officials are off the record say, you know, it's impossible. Missiles are going to get through. OK, missiles are going to get through. I got some bad news for our ships at sea. Missiles are going to get through there, too. If we actually get into a hot war with China, missiles are going to get through. Um, that doesn't mean you don't defend these critical areas, especially these critical assets. So, you know, we do have to have some defense and you have to invest in that ahead of time. You have to deter China. You have to convince China not to do it. We also need the message. This is U.S. territory. If you hit this, Chinese territory will be hit. You, it, you will be escalatory in hitting this. And, and we're not doing a very good job of that. Um, I mean, the, the most famous comments on Guam are that, you know, a few more troops on there it might slide into into the sea, you know, not, you don't hear us very explicitly um, signaling to the Chinese, this is American territory, strikes on this are the same as strikes on California, Hawaii, Washington state, and you can expect a similar response. Um, But if we do those kind of things, we'll really, we'll increase our ability to deter China, because I tell you, the the one country that'll, that'll know that we've improved these capabilities before any other is the Chinese. They'll be studying this carefully. It can have a strong deterrent effect. And then if deterrence fails, it can have a war winning effect for the uh, Air Force and the Navy. Do you think that if China attacks Taiwan, it would pretty quickly go for Guam? Um, I would. Uh, That doesn't mean that's how they're going to fight. Now, I don't understand their escalation management. And since I used to think I understood Russian escalation management, and I clearly don't, I, I'm, uh, I'm a little uncomfortable that anyone in our government fully understands the escalation management of, of our adversaries. So you have to be careful with this. But I would say that if you're really going to go after Taiwan and the United States gets involved, you know, you're going to you're going to have, to have hard decisions. Do you attack the U.S. airfields in Japan? Because if you do that, I think it's highly likely Japan will allow the U.S. to use its airfields. It will have access. I don't know that it's highly likely that Japan will be all in on day one of a conflict. But if the Chinese strike Japanese airfields, 
to limit U.S. capacity and capability from there, then Japan will be all in. And so they have a tough decision there. And I think they have an equally tough de- decision in Guam if we signal, as I said previously, that it's a that it is U.S. Uh, sovereign U.S. territory. Those are U.S. citizens, and a strike on Guam is a strike on the United States, a, co- a conventional strike. So the answer to that question is pretty complex, and I think it feeds into do they strike Japan as well? So you talk about um, misunderstanding escalation management. <clears throat> what was a common misunderstanding of Russian escalation management that like people got wrong and now we're learning from that and, and that could be then applied to China potentially? Well, I think the, the first thing we got wrong was deterrence. You know, the, I, the president kind of famously said, hey, look, deterrence failed, right? Uh, he's talking after February 24th. And I think my answer to that might be, I'm not sure what we were doing to deter them. You know, I'm not sure that in the eight years, we, we did some really good stuff in the eight years following Crimea. It was small unit training at bases using army units in California and Florida and other national guards. And we did a great job training there, the training Ukrainian military at unit level training. And uh, the California National Guard with F-16s did some great training with the Ukrainian Air Force. But in terms of like providing them the kinetic weapons they needed, I mean, very famously, you know, the Obama administration just refused to transfer these things with 2014 or 2016. And, and then uh, or, uh, and under the uh, Trump administration, for a variety of good and bad reasons, um, they were very slow to get this going. They eventually did uh, you know, authorize the, um, the uh, delivery of, um, of uh, kinetic weapons like javelins to Ukraine, but not in the kind of numbers that were necessary. And the Biden administration did not do enough in their first you know, 15 months in office. So that kind of collective seven and a half years of, of not doing enough to deliver the effective weapons meant that we didn't really test deterrence theory in, 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 um, in, in Ukraine. Now, flipping this into Taiwan, I think the lesson is we have to put our cards on the table left of boom. We have to make the investments in Taiwan's self-defense capability and in our, I mentioned a bunch that we can do in our military response. So in Taiwan's self-defense capability, they're spending about 2.4% of uh, GDP on defense right now. And that's come up a little bit. It was down around 2%, but with some purchase, some big purchases that, and uh, they've added in kind of what we would call supplementals uh, to get their percentage up to about 2.4%. And I think it'll sit you know, above 2.5% for the next few years. That's very good for a democracy, uh, but it's not enough for a beleaguered democracy, you know, one under uh, incredible threat from an authoritarian regime. If you think about a similar case, Israel, you know, under threat from authoritarian regimes around it, they're spending upwards of 5 or 6%. We spend, you know, above, around 3.5%. I think Taiwan has to be brought up a little bit. Now, part of it can also be, much like we help Israel for that, to get to that number, we can help Taiwan. And so I support, uh, you know, I've been pushing hard and I support the multiple bills that are out there, uh, the legislative uh, texts that are out there pushing for some kind of security assistance grant program to Taiwan, probably uh, two to $3 billion a year, which is, um, you know, which while a small number in our size of defense budget of 770 plus billion dollars, would make a big difference in Taiwan, where their 2.5%, you know, ends up being about $16 billion. So if we could give 
two to three billion a year. We should predicate it on first and foremost, they have to keep up their spending at 2.5 percent or higher. And second, that they have to buy the right weaponry. You know, you need to buy counter-interventionist, counter-intervention weapons of this. And they probably have to be bought from the United States using our money like this. And that's, you know, pretty typical. But do those things and, you know, we'll help you with this. And then they do need to fully embrace counter-intervention strategy and, and, and not worry as much about the typical tools of an army or navy or air force, but buy the things they need to uh, thwart Chinese aggression. Uh, and they need to get better at joint and they need to do better exercising. You know, final thing I'll tell you, this is extremely frustrating. You know, when we fight alongside the UK, two, R2 plus the UK2 equals five. We actually enable or enhance each other. There's a spectrum of cooperation that goes from deconfliction to synchronization. You know, deconfliction is what you do with your lowest level partner. And by the way, that's where Taiwan is right now, which is you go left, I'm going right, and do not, do not go right or fire into right. Then there's kind of a level that's like coordinated, which says you go left at 12 o'clock, I'll go right at 12 o'clock as well, and we'll pressure the adversary. But again, don't get near me. Uh, and then after coordinated, there's integrated. That means you go left at 12. I'm going to go right at 1145 to distract them and enable your 12 o'clock to go a little better. And maybe I'll provide some supportive fires. And then they're synchronized, like what we do with the UK on occasion, which is where our forces are totally integrated with each other, striking across boundaries, not worrying about things. You know, so with the UK, two plus two equals five. But down here with the Taiwans, two plus two equals three. I mean, we get less out of ourselves because we're deconflicted. So we've got to move ourselves and the Taiwans along that spectrum from de deconflicted to coordinated to integrated. Probably can't get past that. And it would make a big difference. And the way you do that is naval and air exercises. Part of strategic ambiguity has been to not conduct these naval exercises for, for nearly 40 years now. And, you know, our naval and air forces are not integrated. They're not coordinated. They're not familiar with each other. They're not comfortable with each other. And they certainly shouldn't be shooting weapons around each other. So we need to build that up. And building that up is a critical element of all of this. And the beauty of that is, is the cheapest thing I've mentioned so far. You know, doing the, these exercises are already happening with other countries, with Japan. Our forces are doing them alone. Just invite the Taiwan. You can do. You don't even have to land in Taiwan. You can do them at sea. You the air. You know you got to do some coordination. Somebody has to do some pre-planning. But the vast majority of forces can just mix it up and do this. We're close enough to each other there in Japan. Where our forces in Japan and the forces in Taiwan to do this. To me, that's the real critical capabilities and capacities that we have to build between us and Taiwan. And that's what we need to learn from Ukraine. You do this left of boom. The one country that'll know two plus two equals five, China. They'll be studying this carefully. And that's how you deter them. When they determine that two plus two equals five, they're gonna it's gonna give them a deep pause because the, the one thing they hate more than an independent Taiwan is a failed effort to integrate Taiwan. And so they won't want to attack if they think that we've built this kind of real credible, capable power. Well, the problem with left of boom is that in china they read from right to left think about it they they don't anymore not not in mainland china 
True. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Um, well, actually, I had a question about the Taiwan inviting Taiwan on joint military exercises. Have we not done that purely for political reasons? Is it because we're afraid that this is going to antagonize uh, the CCP? And does the resistance also come on the part of Taiwan? Mm. Mm. So, so you're right. We have, um, for political reasons, um, not invited uh, Taiwan. And that's part of strategic ambiguity. And I think that needs to end. Uh, and I think Taiwan would come along. I'm confident they would. Well, I remember when we we were in Taiwan in January of 2020 to cover the uh, the elections there, and we interviewed Wang Dingyu. Remember the the MP from was it Tainan? Tainan, yeah. And he specifically in his interview with us talked about how he wanted Taiwan to be invited to RIMPAC. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let me let me address that because I get that all the time. Well, you know, we can invite yeah. them RIMPAC. RIMPAC is the lowest common denominator exercise. You know, you got 24, 26 countries there. I RIMPAC doesn't do it for me. And plus you introduce the politics of 23 other countries. You know, if I were if I were us, I would just say we're doing an, a uh, you know US Taiwan Air X one, you know, air exercise number one on um, you know in no in you know in June of twenty twenty two. And the area in the uh, airspace in between Okinawa and, and and Taiwan, and you know, and then I do a maritime exercise there. I do a couple each like that, and then I do a, a combined air maritime exercise together. It, and then we, and, and the the one country I'd invite in is Japan. I begin to integrate them into it, but after we get it working and safe and secure, you know, got have the right rules and cryptography, you know, the crypto gear running and all that properly and understand how to communicate safely, get that going, then bring, you know, you bring the Japanese in. RIMPAC would have, I think, some political bang to it. Um, the joint exercises in the West Philippine Sea, or, or, or whatever you want to call that area, just uh, east of um, just east of Taiwan, that will have meaningful military value and political value in that it will drive the Chinese completely, you know, crazy. I mean, when, when you were uh, the, the head of operations for the U.S. Pacific Command and the Navy, like surely you had discussions about this, right? Like how did those discussions go? Okay, so yeah, I, I was for the Joint Force, right? U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. And you're absolutely, you know, we definitely wanted to work with them. And we were definitely told, not only no, I couldn't visit there. I had a few guys who were allowed to go to Taiwan during one exercise a year, but they had to wear civilian clothes. We make the Taiwan people come to the United States or Hawaii come in civilian clothes. We make their pilots who fly at Nellis learning the F-16. They used to fly without any of their patches of their units. You know, they're it's kind of like a little Top Gun 2 action, you know, kind of thing. We don't want to see these Taiwan flags. And, you know, it's insane. I mean, the, the deference to China in this is, you know, to me was unacceptable. You know, if China acted like a reasonable, transparent, mature country and didn't, you know, do Hong Kong, Tibet and what they do with the Uyghurs, I mean, maybe we should we'd show them a little respect. But from my point of view, they show almost no respect for international uh, law. They they're they have very little transparency. Uh, they are uh, what they say and do with Taiwan is unacceptable. I, I do not understand why why we i get that we're the adult in this relationship 
but I don't believe we should be this deferential to them. And I think we should. I was asking to do tabletop exercises. I think we should invite over the Taiwan senior leadership and lay out a, you know, a releasable version of our war planning and they lay out a releasable version of their war planning. And so we understand each other better as well. So in addition to the actual uh, military forces interacting, there should be some senior level planning. And I'd involve our State Department and their Ministry of Foreign Affairs after a while as well to allow the whole interagency process to play out. I think the Taiwans would be a little disappointed when, when they watch our interagency process descend on a on a on a uh, war fight. Uh, but you know, I, I think it'll be that's how you build up a shared sense of understanding and a credible coordinated or integrated war fight, fighting effort. Um, you know, I, I wasn't able to visit Taiwan till after I retired, and when I went to work for Senator McCain, who couldn't have sent me there fast enough, right? You know, he understood the value of of uh, you know recently retired military officers and and um, you know congressional staffers visiting Taiwan, understanding the issue from the Taiwan's point of view. Hmm. Now, if if the U.S. doesn't do any of these things, such as you know doing joint operations with Taiwan and changing its strategic ambiguity stance. Do you think China will invade Taiwan before the end of the decade? So that's a very good question. I think first, what I like to say is Admiral Davidson said this could happen by 2027. He wasn't, of course, accounting for us taking actions. And so I think if we do take actions, we can, and the Taiwanese take actions, we can push the date to the right. The question is, if we don't take actions, is something likely by 2030? I'd say yes. It may not be an explicit cross-strait invasion. They may decide that they have a gray zone way of doing this, you know, using um, cyber attacks on their critical infrastructure, potentially, um, uh, you know, ballistic missile attacks, um, disinformation operations, uh, maybe a quarantining or, or a blockading. It doesn't have to necessarily be the kind of like, you know, heavily kinetic cross-state invasion, but I think something could happen by 2030, probably more in the gray zone. Now, I say that fully recognizing that I thought, and many of us, I think, in, in uh, senior leadership positions thought that the, the Russians were kicking butt in gray zone warfare in Ukraine and you know, broadly in the Caucasus. They'd done a great job. And for whatever reason, Vladimir Putin walked away from it. You know, I mean, the annexation of Crimea was not a kinetic attack in the same way what he just, what he, what's happened since February 24th. It was, it was definitely the very aggressive end of gray zone warfare where little green men poured across the border. They cut the fiber optic cable out of Crimea to cut, you know, data flow into the Ukrainian capital and basically occupied it, you know, and, you know, and, and, uh, illegally annexed it, uh, over period of about a month. So, you know, from, from my perspective, gray zone warfare has worked for authoritarian regimes in general. Not sure why Putin walked away from it, but I don't know that Gio will walk away from it. One of his lessons learned from Ukraine might be, hey, you ought to let that gray zone warfare play out to its real end game before you move to kinetic. That might delay a kinetic attack before 2030. So you talked about cyber. Um, what do you, and, and of course, that's your, that's your field now. What types of cyber warfare do you think we're, we're seeing now with respect to Taiwan and, and what do you think we're going to see in the next three to five years? Yeah. So I, I think um, 
I think Taiwan is subjected to the an even greater level of of attempted penetration than the United States is from China. In other words, I think the Chinese level of efforts even higher. Now you have to account for size of infrastructure and economies, but maybe not quantitatively, but comparatively higher in uh, in in uh, against Taiwan. I think that they're trying their hardest to put malware into their electrical power grid, into their water systems, into their transport systems, uh, into their financial services, into their telecommunications. You know, I think they're trying to get penetration into all of those. I think that they will, they already do a significant amount of disinformation operations, and they'll continue to do that over the next few years. Um, so I think it, it's heavy. Uh, and, and I think, um, I hope that we're doing cyber capacity building exercises with them. Now they, because of the size of their economy and their wealth, they wouldn't qualify for a USAID grant program like we did for Ukraine. By the way, that was really helpful. We gave a grant program starting in 2018, about $40 million over four years to help them with their cyber defenses. And I think that paid off. But the thing that Ukraine also got that Taiwan could get is hunt forward operations by US Cyber Command, where teams work side by side with Taiwan Cyber Mission Force teams. So teams from the cyber, the National Mission Force at US Cyber Command work side by side with their Taiwan counterparts to help look through their infrastructure, ferret out um, Chinese um, uh, malware, um, you know, try to teach them and work with them and learn from them because they've learned things we haven't learned about how, you know, Chinese tactics, techniques, and procedures. Uh, so we're doing it. So I think there's a lot we could do there. I hope it's already happening with Taiwan. We tend to announce hunt forward operations after they're complete, but I think we did nine countries last year. I'm hoping that as we do this year, Taiwan's one of those countries. And uh, I would give Cyber Command a lot of praise for what they did in, in helping Ukraine. You know, I'm just curious, how did you, it sounded like you were you were frustrated with how the U.S. was approaching Taiwan. How did you deal with that when you were you know in the Pacific? Well, there's a chain. I mean, there's a chain of command. We you know you put recommendations up. Um, I do think we rewrote re rewrote war plans to more clearly identify the capability gaps and capacity gaps we had. And I think in some ways that drove the El Rasm discussion that started in the Congress in, in 2017. It has highlighted the submarine challenges. Uh, we definitely were pushing hard for an AWACS replacement. It was obvious to us early on that uh, while the Navy upgraded what's called the E-2C Hawkeye, a carrier-based AWACS, to what's called the E-2D Hawkeye, which is, that, I mean, the only thing they have in common is the word Hawkeye, right? It's just such a dramatically different aircraft, improved uh, aircraft. The, the Air Force had decided to walk away from this and was going to, do it through some kind of magical space-based system that has not yet reached fruition. <laughs> so we were pushing hard on the Air Force. Hey, you got to replace this. We went and saw the Australian wedge tail, and we're pushing it. And I have to say the Air Force um, was not receptive for about three years. But I think as the space-based concept fell out of likelihood of, you know, it became clear it wasn't going to work. And the, the U.S. AWACS, um, aircraft have really reached a, a, a horrific level of readiness, you know, somewhere between 33 and 50% readiness across the 30 aircraft. We really can't generate it. And their capabilities are dated. They're 20 years dated. 
Um, the Air Force has now come around, and uh, it's their own idea, of course. They're going to buy wedge-tail replacement aircraft. How did that happen? That's PACOM studying the most, the most um, dangerous war plan, Taiwan, and determining this was an absolutely necessary component that we needed, and then arguing for it. And it took three or four years too long, just like the Al-Razm, but the Air Force is coming around now and procuring it. So that I think that was a, I mean, that sounds very tactical, but that's, when you're at a COCOM, that's how you respond. You don't get to like call the president up and say, hey, what's up here? You know, get your head on straight. You know, we, we really had to deal with things at a more tactical, capabilities-driven level. It's not like Stargate, where there's the red phone with the direct no, line no. to the president. Not on my <laughs> yes. head. Yeah. Stargate is your military reference. I mean, I guess it was the Air Force. That's right. That's right. Um, so so uh, let's say we don't have a magic portal to fix this. Uh, what, do you, what would you say, in terms of invading Taiwan, what would you say are the Chinese People's Liberation Army's greatest strengths? Uh, ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. That's their number one. They they ease, obviously clearly easily range Taiwan with a significant amount of weaponry. Um, and, and they can set aside the stuff to range Japan and range Guam, you know, in case we intervene. But they can definitely significantly hammer um Taiwan's critical infrastructure and in, in all infrastructure in all sectors. How much damage do these cruise missiles do? Enough, you know, on an electrical power grid, on a water station, on a fuel depot. I mean, kind of one of the untold stories. Like Russia's obviously uh, not had, you know, they've executed they're uh, executed poorly in in Ukraine, uh, and you know we can they clearly are no longer a large scale maneuver army. They have, however, launched more than, you know, 23, 2400 cruise and ballistic missile attacks into Ukraine with some levels of success. And the Ukrainians, and I totally support them doing this, don't show us the successes of Russian attacks on, on you know, air bases, military stowage units, logistics, uh, oil field, things like that, because, you know, as part of the information operators campaign, you don't want the Russians to know if they're successful or not. But I mean, uh, Russian and Chinese cruise missiles will be effective in really hammering our the critical infrastructure of U.S. allies and partners. They have been in Ukraine. They will be in Taiwan. They would be in, in Japan if they attack Japan. And they could be against Guam as well if they attack Guam. So that's something we really have to prepare for. And this is not like a stinger problem, right? An inbound cruise missile or an inbound ballistic missile is not going to be engaged by a stinger. We really need to find low-cost short-range air defense systems that are effective. We also need to really emphasize uh, deception techniques. They do do a lot of cave work in Taiwan for, for bunkering that, you know, for, uh, for uh, 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 placing their, um, their aircraft in, you know, and they can fly aircraft off to some of their highways. I mean, they, there's a lot of resilience in Taiwan. I, I don't know if it's Ukrainian level resilience, which has been impressive, but, there's a lot of resilience in Taiwan. And, uh, and so that, it, to me, is going to be the first problem. The, the second problem is, you know, China, the second opportunity China is going to have is, and, this, and it depends on U.S. intervention, 
but they could reasonably easily quarantine or blockade Taiwan if the only response is Taiwan forces. If the United States gets involved, it gets much harder. But that's a really, that's gray zone. It's hard for us to say, you know, we're going to start sinking your ships that are blockading. You know, the United States does not like to be the first mover, so to speak, you know, in, in combat operations, if we can help it. But, you know, when forced to, we have been in the past. Uh, but, you know, so I worry about ballistic missiles. We'd already talked about cyber, but I'd say cyber fits into that as well. And then uh, and then blockading, um, quarantining. The problem for them is none of those three are, are necessarily war-winning strategies. You know, so while we are weakest at the, com- combating those, they they may not get them the desired result. I will say a quarantine blockade can get to a war-winning strategy pretty quick when people can't eat, uh, you know, or, or they have significant, you know, uh, you know, the complete loss of GDP. You know, that that would have a significant impact. But, you know, that that might be war winning for the Chinese. My point on this is the things that the Chinese are good at aren't quite aren't as quickly war winning as the other things, which would be an amphibious assault or an airborne assault, which I think would be very challenging for the Chinese. Yeah. So what what kind of brings me into the next question, which is we talked about the PLA strengths, but what are their biggest weaknesses? Uh, First is undersea warfare. Um, I think that they would struggle to locate and destroy U.S. submarines. Second is amphibious warfare. They haven't actually built the amphibious fleet that we're traditionally used to seeing. I mean, they're hoping to secure a beachhead very with a small number of forces, secure a beachhead, and just kind of flow things on roll-on, roll-off assets. That that might not work. Um, you know, that is not a traditional amphibious know, forced entry kind of uh, fleet. They don't have that. So first thing is undersea warfare. Second is I don't think they've really built that amphibious structure. On the other hand, it's not a long run, right? It's 80 kilometers across the strait. So, you know, they don't have to go that far, but, you know, they don't have the right, I don't believe they have the right kit to do it right now. Um, it. I. We have to be careful saying this, but I'm not sure at least in comparative comparison to the U.S. forces, that they have the the same level of operational expertise, you know, war fighting experience and operational expertise, and so that could play a role in this. It, it, they do vis-a-vis the Taiwan's. Neither one of them have have that, but they don't have it vis-a-vis us. So that that could be a, a, a detriment, but depends on how the war plays out. And as far as a scenario where the PLA is actually fighting American forces, I know a lot of people are concerned about China's anti-aircraft carrier missiles or the fact that there are more Chinese Navy ships than there are American Navy ships. Um, is How much of a threat do you think that actually is? Well, I think they're a pretty significant threat to U.S. carrier forces. There'll be risk. But they also, you know, they're a big threat to all our airfields, too. I mean, an airfield's a carrier that doesn't move. Right. I mean, at least the carrier has got a chance of creating some deception and, and targeting challenges that, you know, I'm pretty sure the GPS for Misawa Air Base is known to the Chinese. You know, they they got that they got that pretty, pretty set. Um, so I worry about all of those. I mean, I, our, our aviation strike capability is very important in this and our aviation support to bombers coming into theater is very important. And that's all at risk. And the carriers are at risk. You know, we could lose carriers in, in this kind of conflict. And, 
Um, you know, we haven't thought a lot about that, but I mean, that's a pretty significant, you know, that's a risk, but I think it's one that we're willing to take. Um, and so, you know, the, and again, you know, we'll even lose some submarines, I'm sure to mines or to, uh, or to just, you know, being exposed after they've done a significant attack. Um, but you know, that, that's kind of the risk. If we decide to get into this kind of conflict, this will this will be an unusual war for us in the sense that a lot of forces are at risk immediately. Do you think that that's been kind of accounted for? Because you mentioned that the Chinese Communist parties, they don't have the same operational uh, experience as U.S. forces, but also um, how long has it been since the U.S. has fought a war in the Pacific? No, that's a fair point. I don't think it's been accounted for yet. I don't think it's built into the and, you know, I think individual pilots, because they have that risk with every takeoff and landing, especially carrier-based ones. So I, probably it's built into their ethos a little more. But for the for everyone else, I think I think this will be this will be part of a challenge that we have to you know prepare our forces for. But the um, uh, I, I don't uh, uh, the yeah I think that's a, a fair you know question. You know, are, are we ready for this in, in the same way? Um, I, I don't think any country is ready for kind of major air and naval combat. It just hasn't happened in a long time, particularly naval combat. Um, so it, we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait a little bit on that. You know, we'll have to continue to work that and build that warfighting capacity and spirit in our into our forces. Now, uh, one of the, the challenges we've seen the Russian army face is their uh, poor ability to supply their troops on these forward operations into Ukraine. Uh, how is China's capability with respect to if they can if they can land troops on Taiwan beachheads, can they keep them supplied? Can they keep getting more troops there? Can they keep, you know, can can they fuel the tanks? That's that's a fantastic question. So, you know, when I think about Russia and Ukraine, I mean Two things are undermined them. One is uh, the lack of, a, of senior of empowered NCOs and the turnover of 60 percent of their people. Set that aside. You know, when we turn over about 10 percent of our military every year, big differences. Set that aside. The second biggest issue has been this logistics. You know, for us, logistics, the challenge of logistics is always the last mile. How do I get a, a, a round into an M1A1 tank forward? How do I get a sidewinder onto an F-16 at, at an airfield? Uh, for the Russians, it turned out that the logistics challenge was the first mile. You know, uh, wherever I've been sitting for the last three weeks in Belarus or three months in Russia, as I left that, you know, I started to have a logistics challenge four, eight hours later. You know, as I broke free, I had food problems, water problems, fuel problems, ammo problems, communications problems, everything. And I mean, that was a surprise to us, I think. I, I certainly had not read anything that led me to believe that would be true. Now, look, when, now you, you, you say, well, the Chinese have in many ways mimicked Russian development, and there's some truth to that. Um, the one place I'd say that the analogy doesn't hold is that while Russia does not have a well-developed commercial, you know, on-time delivery service like, like, the, like Europe and the United States have, China is more like us with that. You know, they have developed the internal logistics. In other words, there are logistics that run their domestic economy in a way, you know, that that pro is is more akin to ours than to what happens in Russia. 
So it's very hard for us to assess. I'm sure there are people immediately taking a look at this right now. Like what is the logistics capability and capacity of the Chinese forces? Now, one other thing is the Chinese are fighting a home game and um, they're not talking about, um, you know, the, uh, the uh, air forces. I don't think I have an issue. The maritime forces won't. But what you're getting at is when they get a lodgement in Taiwan, are they going to be able to do it? I would say it's an 80 kilometer push. But you're absolutely right. I, I think, look, if they got a lodgement, I would, if I were the U.S. and Taiwanese Joint Force Commander, I'd immediately destroy any airfield nearby with U.S. strikes. So make them do maritime. Make their roll-on, roll roll-off and logistics ships run a gauntlet of U.S. submarines. My answer would be, I don't care if they were going to be good, we'll make them not good. You know, hmm. have El Razams plowing into that. You know, those are undefended ships. One El Razam will sink them, but we'll probably hit them with two because that's how we are. You know, but I mean, you know, it would be a I think they'd have you've hit on a real risk for them is that if they go for a lodgement event, you know, they better be able to secure and defend two or three airfields. And, and the same problem that the Taiwans have holding off Chinese ballistic and cruise missile attacks on the airfields is the same problem that Chinese, you know, lodgement force will have holding off U.S. attacks on those, you know, uh, tomahawk attacks onto formerly Taiwan, now Chinese-held airfields. I, I think they would have a lot of trouble doing this. And, and I think that one of the positive lessons of Ukraine from us is that, you know, our ability to, to cut off the adversary's logistics chain, it can be determinative. It certainly was for a self-inflicted determinative problem for Russia and Ukraine. So how many ground troops does the PLA need to station in Taiwan in order to actually take Taiwan? So I've done a bunch of unclassified war games recently where there's a lodgement event, right, where they're trying to get that. And they've got to get a lot of shore before it's self-sustaining, you know, before it can hold, defend and grab more land. And I mean, it's a real challenge for them. I mean, we have to be slow in our decision making, you know, look, I just described a known flaw with us, you know, but we have to be slow. If we're very slow in our decision making process to support Taiwan, they may be able to get a large lodgement on. But if we're if we're medium speed or fast and responding to the to the uh, call for assistance and we're committed to destroying the forces, trying to seek lodgement and replenish those forces. You know, the, uh, then I think that we can we can create a an unwinnable condition for the Chinese. Well, I think a big factor in the Ukraine war is just the overwhelming support uh, for defending Ukraine in the American public and the media, uh, and that's you know given a lot of political power to uh, the Biden administration to be active. Do you think in the event of an invasion of Taiwan, you would see the same kind of support for Taiwan from American society? Yes, for Taiwan, but you know, I don't think it's going to be predicated by a statement by the president that there'll be no U.S. ground forces. Right? You can't say that. So we're supporting something different here. Do the American people support giving four billion dollars worth of gear? You know, eight or ten billion dollars worth of defense support and humanitarian support, and paying slightly higher uh, gas taxes? Yes. It's a different question in Taiwan. It's all that. Plus, do the American people mind placing fifty to 60,000 troops at risk? 
that's a different, you know, the answer, I don't think anybody, I don't know that anyone can answer that question accurately right now. Well, so could you paint for us uh, what it would look like in a scenario where the U.S. does not defend Taiwan or the U.S. fails to defend Taiwan and China successfully seizes control of Taiwan? So if we, you know, there's two aspects to this. It's what's the impact of the loss of Taiwan on our economic, on our supply chain and our economy? And then what's the what's the, our failure to defend Taiwan? What's the effect? What's the effect on our credibility as an ally and partner? So on the first one, I would say the um, the, uh, you know, it would be a significant supply chain issue for us and not just in, in semiconductors and microchips, but starting in semiconductors and microchips. If we lost access to Taiwan, our ability to uh, in very important critical areas be decoupled from Chinese production would be non-existent. We'd have to basically spend an unbelievable amount of money and a significant amount of time to generate that kind of semiconductor production in the United States and, and allies and partners. Uh, TSMC has that big a, a market share. Um, but there are other uh, economic problems uh, or logistics challenges in, in, a, uh, in, in a, a loss of Taiwan, supply chain problems in a loss of Taiwan, but I center on, on, on semiconductors. The second issue, the credibility issue is just as bad. I mean, Japan thinks we're going to defend Taiwan. Korea thinks we're going to defend Taiwan. Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines think we're going to defend Taiwan. If we abrogate that, I don't think we can leg legitimately remain the security and economic partner of choice in Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia. And we will be, those countries will make decisions, hard decisions, about embracing a non-transparent, non-rules-based, not fun to deal with China. And, and beginning to abandon their relationships with us. And that would have significant long-term economic impacts in the United States. And it, it may even impact NATO as well, to some degree, the Baltic states and Poland, although they don't have any other good options. I mean, Russia, Russia doesn't want to just be the economic security partner of choice for, like China does for Southeast Asia. Russia would like to actually reincorporate some of those countries. And so... They, they, they may not have a choice in, in NATO, but I think both of those issues, the supply chain issue and the credibility issue, are enormous. And they should drive us to do the right thing beyond the actual just do the right thing thing, you know, in defending a beleaguered democracy. I mean, what do we stand for if we don't stand for defending a, uh, a democratic country that has that tries to mirror so many of its aspects of society off of us, you know, economically and, uh, and politically. When it's under threat from a clear authoritarian regime that won't, you know, that won't practice, the, you know, won't share uh, values and interests with us, of, you know, as I've said about transparency and rule of law. I mean, what do we stand for if we're just like, yeah, sorry about that. I mean, I... I think it's going to, it would be very problematic. I mean, I think it would be very challenging for us to maintain our position in the world if we're not a country that can see what right from wrong is in Taiwan. Well, thank you for joining us today. It's, it's, it's great to have, you know, your kind of inside uh, experience and knowledge about the situation.
thank you very much for having me. This was fun. I learned a few things just thinking through the questions you said. So thanks for the opportunity. Oh, happy to hear that. Well, that, that was a really interesting interview. I feel like there's a lot. Well, I feel like I learned a lot, but I also feel like there's a lot of reason to, you know, hope that China won't successfully invade Taiwan. I mean, it felt like we need to get our act together. Yeah. 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 But it's doable. Yeah. I mean, I just, I wouldn't want the U.S. Navy, you know, uh, sending cruise missiles to stop or to destroy Chinese naval ships unless we've also done enough coordination with Taiwan that like, this is cool to do, you know, like if two plus two equals three, because we haven't done uh, good operations, joint operations with them, then like there could be a lot of problems with us trying to target Chinese fleet because we could end up causing problems for the Taiwanese fleet and so on. So like, I, I really see that, that if we don't get these joint operations going pretty soon, it's going to be problematic. Well, I don't think it's so much an issue of like, it would be a problem for Taiwan if we sank Chinese ships. It's that, you know, crossfire, friendly fire, just like we, we, we trip each other up. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, but I think that's a, that's a really big potential problem. Yeah, that is. Yeah. I mean, really the goal should not be to prevent a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. The goal is to support a Taiwanese invasion of mainland China, (laughs) the establishment of West Taiwan. Or, or, or we could, America could fake everyone out and we invade Taiwan. <laughs> yeah. While China is invading Taiwan, we sneak in from the north and through Russia. Um, okay. Oh, no, no, no. He's saying something different than you're no, no, saying. No, um, America should, should invade Taiwan from the east and then we control Taiwan. But then instead of what we did at the end of World War II and give it to China, we give it to Japan. I feel like Chris's face right now is just... America should colonize Taiwan. That's what you're saying? (laughs) Think about it. They've got the best hot pot. They've got... You go to 7-Eleven in Taiwan, they've got those like... Those like uh, milk... They have like truly weird pizza though. I don't know if we can... I don't know if Uh, we want them because their pizza is really strange. And also their sandwiches are a little weird. Yeah, I really like how we have like these incredibly smart experts on. And as soon as they leave... The level of dumb <laughs> it's goes skyrocket. Yes. It's interesting because I felt like when you misunderstood Matt, you were like, oh, this is a great idea. We could sneak in and take China while they're distracted taking that. Uh-huh. That's what you were thinking. Yeah. But no, Matt's, Matt's idea was definitely way more out in left field. Yeah. Well, actually, I did. I did think about that briefly during uh, the interview. Like, you know, hey, like if Guam is part of American territory, don't attack that. Otherwise, it's the same as attacking California. If we just took over Taiwan and attacking Taiwan would be the same as attacking California. Wait a second. I think like some Americans would like that. We don't. An attack on California, not Taiwan. Okay. Well, hold on. We don't have to colonize Taiwan for that. It just having a defense treaty would essentially. I see the middle way. (laughs) Defense treaty, maybe like an Air Force base have some marines on taiwan is that what you're saying yeah nope i stand by help taiwan invade mainland china west taiwan a thousand years i feel like that was the chiang kai-shek dream (laughs) it was (laughs) can we help taiwan's old authoritarian ruler achieve his dream 
post-mortem. That's beautiful. Or posthumously, I think, is the word. Hey, on. <laughs> that's, that's not the dumbest like mistake we've made in this outro section. No. There's, there's a lot of support on the internets for uh, West Taiwan. I don't know that there's that much support in Taiwan for West Taiwan. Uh, maybe it's, well, a, I mean, it's a logistical challenge. It's it's it could be because they don't see the potential, the possibilities. If if we can say like, hey, this is a realistic thing, level of dumb is skyrocketing. <laughs> All right. Anyway, some people like it when it's just us talking. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, somebody commented on a recent uh, YouTube episode of this that they watch purely because of how fast the outro just crashes and burns train wreck yeah well let me contribute to that today so like i, I was think working you've already done it but okay go oh, ahead. Let, let me do it more so um so today I, I was i'm writing a script about taiwan and then the state department thing and so which helped me prepare for this but somehow or another in the process of researching about you know taiwan i discovered this new conspiracy theory <laughs> called mud flood <laughs> Oh, yeah, I saw your text about that. I did not read it. So the idea is that in the 1800s, there was a mud flood all over the world that like uh, destroyed uh, this highly advanced civilization called Tartaria. Then uh, they had like free Wi-Fi and all, all of this stuff. And it's been covered up <laughs> Wait. But by mud. Well, literally, and then by, you know, the governments of the world. Where so, was so, Tataria? So, like, Eastern Europe, the, the stands area where the Tartars Yeah, my were? impression is, like, the a lot of the evidence they use is, like, these old maps where, like, you know, in Europe, they, they didn't know any better about, like, kind of Central Europe, Asia. They didn't, they just kind of call them, oh, they're, they're the Tartars. And so, on, like, old maps, it would just be like, all of this is... Tartar land or Tartar. <laughs> and so they're like, see, this was an ancient civilization called Tartaria. In the 1800s? Yeah, it's really recent. Uh, yeah, I feel like we would have history that debunks that. But you know Well, what? no, because history is controlled by the governments and they're lying to us. Wow. Yeah, this this really did go off the rails really fast. I know. I'm just I'm just fascinated by this thing. <laughs> well, I just discovered it today, so it's you know. But there are there are some conspiracy theories that are just fun. Like Time Cube. Time cube, yeah. So, anyway, the look on Shelly's face says, let's wrap this up, Chris. It's because she can't handle cubic thought. Thanks for watching China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly Chong, I and think. I, <laughs> and I'm Matt Ganesta. And I sincerely apologize. See you next time.